Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Good morning. Oh, that was so lively. You guys are all here. First service, they were all a little tired this morning from that lack of an hour of sleep. But my name is Tyler, and I get the amazing privilege of being one of the pastors around here. And I think I have the best job out of all of us pastors because I get to work with the students. And I know a lot of you in the room are like, I don't know if that would be considered that the best job. But I do. I absolutely love our students. I get to work with um, some awesome middle school and high school students uh, every week and hang out through the week with them. And I've had some awesome conversations over the past year as we in student ministry have also been studying the book of James as well as here on a Sunday morning. And, And James has been challenging us as a church to have our faith be worked out in our daily lives through our conduct, through our actions. And then now in this section, he's talking about in the ways that we communicate. And, and over the past few weeks, we have been in this third section of our series in the chapter three. Um, and the title of this section is Faith Works When I Speak. So it's been kind of cool during student ministry because I've had a few students that have taken a lot of these challenges from James to heart. And Ryan is here in the front row and him and I lead a small group together. Um, And so it's really awesome. Um, And so one of our students a few weeks ago, and remember this Ryan with me, one of the students piped up and, and asked this phrase. It was like, have you guys ever heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words would never hurt me. And and we have all heard that phrase before, right? But this, this student in our small group asked the question to everybody else. Well, all of a sudden, we had had somewhat of a kind of a dead moment in our small group at that moment. But as soon as that student shared that quote, there was an absolute popping off of these middle school students. And this is some of the stuff that they said, and I just found it so interesting. One of them said, yeah, whoever wrote that must have lived in a box, so, yeah, middle school students. Another one said, yeah, I, um, let's see, where was it? And nev- I, they have never talked to anybody before, was what one of them said. Because they don't understand that words stick with you, that they do indeed hurt. So I found that so awesome because it shows our students are starting to understand the potential that their speech has to do a lot of damage in the lives of those around them. Just like last week, we saw a small fire, if uncontained, can burst, burning down an entire forest. And so kind of this big idea for this section that I have, as I've been doing my own internal processing, um, is this. The way we communicate verbally and non-verbally, not just the way we, the words we speak, but the, even the words that we don't speak, non-verbally, reflects what is inside of our hearts. That what is in the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay, and so then as I've again, you know, diving in for myself, there's three places where I have been challenged in the past couple of weeks. And the first place where I see that my tongue can do some damage is in relationships, in family and friends and spouses, neighbors. And we tend, and I'm talking about myself, but we tend to let our communication grow flippant sometimes 
in these relationships. And we kind of begin to use our words to bring others down. And, and I see this in my marriage sometimes. Like, I don't let the words that I'm saying filter through. And I end up saying something hurtful. That comes from a bitter place in my heart. It comes from something internally. And it ends up, you know, I absolutely then just apologize immediately for that. Right? I apologize immediately because I realize it was not the best thing to say. But that apology doesn't undo the damage that was done. The fire of my tongue has already left a burn in her heart that needs healing. So that's one place where I have been just challenged this week. A second place is, you know, how we communicate about our circumstances. Maybe when there's a hardship or a trial or even when we're comparing our lives to other people. I think social media right now is a huge place where this takes place in my life. I don't know if you guys feel the same. But I tend to look at the lives of my friends through their curated highlight reel of their life that they portray on these platforms. And then there's this jealousy that's inside of me that just starts to bubble out. And it's shown externally in how I communicate about the circumstances of my own life and how I talk about even the circumstances of their life. It bubbles out in that way. And then the final place that I was challenged this week that, that our tongue can do damage is in our decisions. Financial or job change or maybe even a college decision. But for me, I think I didn't know how much decision-making could be so damaging until I got married. You, can, you guys are doing really good. You got, the guys that just laughed understand, right? So just ride with me. When I, we first got married almost two years ago now, I would make so many quick decisions, right? So many just quick decisions. And what would I communicate? I would only communicate the definitive decision that I had made in my head already, right? I'd only communicate that definitive decision. I wouldn't even communicate about the process of how I got to that point. And in doing that, I actually caused pain and strain in our marriage because I was dismissing Amanda's thoughts altogether, right? So I am challenged in how we communicate matters. And in all of these situations, our tongue, our speech, the way we communicate can be a danger if it's left unchecked. Even James goes so far to say, if you remember from last week in verse 8, he says this in verse 8. This is what James said about the tongue. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. That's how far James goes to talk about this tongue in our communication. No human being can tame the tongue. No human being can control it. And that's where we kind of left it last week. Right? That's where James kind of left us last week. There is no way that we can tame it. But there's a sweet thing about this letter. The thoughts of James actually continue into the next 
chunk of verses. James doesn't just leave us hanging there, right? He doesn't just leave us there. He continues writing, and he's going to show us in these next verses today that there is an actual better way than this ungodly, unworldly, restless evil of a tongue. There is a different way. We can't tame the tongue, James says. But today he's going to say, but God can. So let's read in verse 13. Start there. James 3, 13 through 18 is what we're going to be reading today. So who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Pray with me before we dive in. God, thank you so much that you give us your word this morning. That this book of this letter that James wrote doesn't just end with us understanding that we can't tame the tongue. But God, you in these verses now are going to show us that there is a way. And it's in reliance on you. So Lord Jesus, be here with us. Speak through your word today. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So our big idea this morning that I feel like James is leading us in is that godly wisdom in our conduct demonstrates our genuine faith in Jesus. Godly wisdom in our conduct demonstrates our genuine faith in Jesus. And then he's going to go a step deeper into that, and he's going to talk about the differences between a worldly wisdom, a worldly perspective on it, and a godly wisdom, a more holy perspective, later on in the passage. But James starts this section exactly, I don't know if you guys have noticed this throughout the time in James, but he starts a lot of his sections with a question. And I think it's one that we should wrestle with for a moment. He says this in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? The question he asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Who understands these things that I'm telling you? Who gets it? Well, my nat- my, naturally, my brain now is just camping on this one word in there, wise. I'm camping on wise. And I pause asking this question then, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? As I started looking into these verses, I had this definition in my head of what wisdom is. And it was applied knowledge. That's the definition that I started out with. Applied knowledge. And here's kind of an example of how that plays out in my life. I love disc golfing. Disc golf is one of my things. Jeff has already reprimanded me because it's not real golf is what Jeff said. But 
It's an activity that I know a lot about. I have a lot of knowledge about it. But knowing a lot about it does not mean that I'm wise in it. I may know how to put a disc into a basket. I may know that in my head, but if I don't put it into practice, it is not wisdom. It's only through learning and then putting the knowledge into practice do I become wise. It's applied knowledge, applied intellectual knowledge. So that is how I kind of think of wisdom as I was coming into today. But let's see then, James has taken this definition already in James. So if you look back into chapter 1, he even adds a deeper component to it than that. And we're going to see that here in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, this is back in chapter 1, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. James takes this definition that I had, and he kind of changes it. And he adds this huge component to wisdom. God. He adds God into the mix. Which changes the definition altogether to me then. It changes it from applied knowledge, like I originally stepped into even just thinking this week, and then it changes it to applied knowledge of God's perspective. Applied knowledge of God's perspective. We seek and pray. James said in that first chapter, we ask God if we lack wisdom. So we seek and pray to God for his perspective, his thoughts, his will, as we interact with the trials and the circumstances and the decisions of our life. We're asking for his perspective that we then apply. So James here, in chapter 3, though, he's taking this idea he introduced in chapter 1 of wisdom. He introduced that of God's perspective. And then he goes deeper into it here in chapter 3. And he says at the end of verse 13 that this applied portion of our definition is so key. The application of God's perspective is, is crucial to the genuine faith of a Christ follower. He says it in verse 13 there. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works. In the meekness of wisdom, let him show his works. By his conduct, his good conduct. So conduct, words, works are indicators that you have this wisdom, that you have God's perspective through your faith in Jesus, and that your thoughts and perspectives are being transformed and then inevitably expressed in your conduct. So James now then, after laying that out for us, is going to then go into comparing what that should not look like, earthly wisdom, and what that should look like, godly wisdom. So we're going to start in verse 14 here. And we're going to see, James is going to show us that worldly wisdom results in an absence of peace. So we're going to go to the text and see how we get there. Verse 14 we're going to start with. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, or godly wisdom, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, where those things exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I don't know if you guys see this, but James is going underneath the surface, right? He's going underneath the surface. He's not just talking about behaviors here. Do you guys see that? He's going underneath. He's going straight to the heart. And we see three things internally that are produced in our hearts when we are not relying on God's perspective, when we're relying on our own perspective. We see these things. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James says that there is this heart change that occurs when we do not rely on God in our own lives, in our own thoughts, that internally we just grow bitter and jealous and selfish. We take God out of the equation completely and think that we know better than him. And when I see my heart moving in this bitter, jealous, selfish direction, when I see that, this is what I see. I see bitterness, jealousy, and selfish ambition creating no peace with God. There isn't peace with God in that. There isn't an internal security in the cross of Jesus Christ or this new identity that he gives us. Instead, this worldly wisdom, James says, isn't about God at all. It's about us. It's about us. That this worldly wisdom is self-oriented and self-focused only, which produces an absence of peace And this next verse, in verse 15, just solidified that thought for me and also struck me in my tracks this week. And this is where I was struck. When those works and words and conduct happen that maybe damage or are sinful in my life, it points to a deeper absence of peace with God. That there is something amiss in my relationship with Christ because this bitterness, this jealousy, or this selfish ambition exists. And James says in verse 15 that this self-focused perspective is the complete opposite of faith. He writes in verse 15 there that it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's the complete opposite of faith. He ratchets up there. Do you see how he ratchets in those words? He's going from earthly, and then he goes, it's unspiritual, meaning it's not even a part of the spiritual life. And then he says, it's actually demonic, the complete opposite of God. This self-focused, worldly wisdom. So this self-focused wisdom puts us at war with God. No peace with him. But he also then, 
he moves us not only from saying, hey, there's this internal war happening with you and God, but he also says there's going to be external results of that and what that looks like in your life. And he says this in verse 14 and 16. I don't know if you guys see that, but, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That's one of those external expressions of a lack of peace with God. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists in your heart, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Again, he's making it clear here that the external conduct is birthed from this selfish, worldly perspective within. And so we're going to look at just one of these external expressions, and let's look at the word disorder. So when you think of disorder, I'm a visual thinker, okay? So what does that look like to you? To me, it looks like this. Black Friday shopping. That is disorder to me. It is chaos, it's disruption, and overall, it's an absence of peace to me. If you go Black Friday shopping, that's awesome. That's your joy. Take it. <laughs> go have it. It is not mine, <laughs> okay? I went, like, the, the extent, my parents are here, the extent that we went Black Friday shopping was going to the small town Walmart and walking in with the other 20 people, okay? <laughs> that's what I think Black Friday shopping is. But this is chaos to me. Too many people, not much, not too much chaos, not enough peace. But James, I think, continues to drill us with this idea that what's inside of you will inevitably come out. That if there's an absence of peace with God internally, you can expect a lack of peace externally. If you have disorder with God, you will have disorder with others. And James states for us that worldly, selfish wisdom, self-oriented wisdom, inevitably leads to no peace with God and with others. As I was reflecting this week about that, in my own heart, if there's this bitterness in my heart towards that bully in school from 20 years ago, it will be expressed in how I interact with someone that has those similar bullish-like qualities today. How I interact with them will be expressed differently if I have that bitterness in my heart. If there is jealousy in my heart towards my friends on social media that are going on all these lavish vacations, going to warm beaches, right? Right now, I'm feeling that. It will be shown in how I diminish the joy that is happening in my own life, how I talk about my own life, and how I talk about and diminish the joy that's happening in their life. So James states that this self-oriented wisdom leads to no peace. But now he pivots. 
he said, he doesn't just leave us there again, right? He doesn't just say, all right, this is what you shouldn't do. Now go try to figure it out. He says, this is what you should do. This is what it should look like. This is what godly wisdom looks like, 17 and 18. We're going to see that godly wisdom displays a deep peace with God and with others. 17 and 18 are verses. But the wisdom from above, this godly wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. He starts with a list of these internal characteristics of our thoughts and our hearts as we surrender under godly wisdom and godly perspective. He says that it is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the first on that list, he literally says first, distinguishing it, first pure. Purity. James says the critical difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Purity. I think of the words blamelessness or holy or unstained, righteous. When we put on this new perspective, this new way of thinking, purity is key. And even Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that I'm sure his brother James was referencing. And he says this, Blessed, this is what Jesus said, Beatitude, Blessed are the poor in heart. Pure, thank you, not poor. There is one poor in spirit earlier. Pure in heart, for they shall see God. These characteristics that James lists are so much like the words of his brother Jesus. The pure of heart shall see God. They shall see and have knowledge of the holiness of God and know that the sin that so easily entangles us, that the tongue that so easily gets them in trouble, that the thoughts that can point us in the wrong direction have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. A person with godly wisdom understands that when they put their genuine faith in Jesus, it creates in them a pure, unstained heart that changes the way that they think, the way that they act, and the way that they speak. It makes us pure. And then he points to one more characteristic that I want to talk about here. In this, in that James says in 17, he says, first pure, then peaceable. Peaceable. It's through this surrender to God's perspective that we are so filled with that internal peace, right? When we surrender to God's perspective in our lives, it gives us an internal peace with God. And it will inevitably spill out from our hearts and will be expressed in our conduct to those around us. That God's wisdom 
not only gives internal peace, but results in peace with others. And James ends his section here on on wisdom from above in verse 17, or 17 and 18. And then he adds 18 in there. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, all internally. And then he goes, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James now is saying that this God and others-oriented wisdom, this godly wisdom, has peace with God and peace with others. He says it in language in 18 that's so profound, I just got to read it again. It says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This godly wisdom now externally, speaking's hard sometimes, externally results with peace with others. To be peacemakers in the lives of those around us. And again, I think of Matthew 5. And what's so cool, the next beatitude from pure at heart, blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. For they shall be called sons of God. The pure at heart, they will see and have knowledge of God. But the peacemakers will be called sons of God family of God. So James now is saying that this God and others wisdom displays a deep peace with God, but a deep peace with others. And so blessed are the peacemakers. They're powerful words from Jesus that he is saying are critical in the, a critical attribute to the life of a disciple. But when I hear this word and be a peacemaker... Right? I'm like, well, how does that look? Right? How does that look? I'm like, oh, it sounds all great, but how does that look? What does that look like? Well, I swing to two extremes. Okay? So these are two extremes of a peacemaker. And I am naturally jumping to this side. So I'm just being honest. This is me. I'm naturally avoidant. Anybody else in the room with me? I see some nods. Let's go. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm avoidant. I just live comfortably with others. Just avoid conflict in light of making peace. That's what my natural says a peacemaker is. And I think I'm being a peacemaker because people think of me as a nice guy. (laughs) Jessica's laughing. That's pretty good. Thank you. People think of me as a nice guy. But this avoidance is not peacemaking. It's not a peacemaker. James and Jesus are not talking about our comfort at all. It's about pointing others to the peace that we have found with God. And that means that we actually step into people's lives and into their messes instead of just avoiding them completely. But there's this other side of this extreme. And this is, it's aggressive. And And when I'm convicted, because I'm naturally avoidant, when I'm convicted, 
This is what happens to me. I go, ooh, I'm not being a peacemaker. I know I need to like step in and actually like speak truth in people's lives. But what happens then? I come in like a wrecking ball to the other side. <laughs> right? It's seriously, that's what happens. And I feel myself do this so often. I then swing to the complete opposite where I'm looking to point out and maybe even criticize and judge and bash people over the head with the truth. Even though that may be well-intended in the heart, right? Because you're saying if I need, they need to know this truth in order to have peace with God, right? Even though that's well-intended sometimes, I've lost sight of God's perspective altogether. I lost sight of this godly wisdom that he said produces pure, peaceable, and gentle of a heart. I then take it upon myself to do the work of the Holy Spirit when I fall into this side. And I play God in someone else's life. But hear me say this, both extremes are missing the mark. They're missing the mark. And I need to go in this and actually go make peace with God if I'm falling in these both places. Because James and Jesus are telling us that a peacemaker, it's in the middle. And I think as I was processing this week, there's a three-word description that just keeps hitting me over and over throughout my life, in my marriage, in ministry, in everything. It's hitting here. Kind yet firm. Kind yet firm. That is a peacemaker. We are kind expressing the love and grace of Jesus as someone who has been given kindness and forgiveness from God. Yet, we hold fast to the truth. We don't lose our foundation in the truth of the gospel. So as peacemakers, we are kind in grace, yet firm in truth. So going back to verse 18, there's one more thing that just struck me, okay? There's one more thing. Verse 18, he uses words like harvest and sown in peace by those who make peace is the words that he uses. He uses those language. And it got me thinking of where I grew up, Okay, it got me thinking of the farmland. Yeah, the heartland, let's go, the Midwest. All right, so I grew up in small town, rural southern Minnesota, and my grandpa is a crop farmer. So each year after the spring thaw, it's planting season. My grandpa would go out into the field, plant seeds in the fields. But let me ask you all a question. This is one that was profound to me. When you plant a seed of corn, what do you expect will grow? Corn. Thank you. You guys are so good with audience participation. You're right there. Oh, it's so good. Nine o'clock was there as well. And I was like, I'm proud of you. You had your coffee this morning. Um, But bring this idea then to peace. If we plant seeds of anger or bitterness, jealousy or selfishness into our interactions with those around us, what will we expect to grow in those relationships? corn. (laughs) Yes. Yes. We will grow those things. We will grow corn. (laughs) 
We will grow bitterness and anger and jealousy and selfish ambition. So I think this point is so profound when thinking about a peacemaker. The seeds we sow are what will grow. I love good rhymes. I'm a good rapper. The seeds we sow are what will grow. What we plant as seeds in our words and our actions and our conduct is what will grow in our relationships and our circumstances and decisions. And this is the part of this that I was just blown, like, ugh. I asked myself this question and I just wrestled with it so much. Why do we expect there to be peace in our homes, in our marriages, in our neighborhoods, and in our world when we are not planting it? Why do we expect that there be peace when we plant anger, when we plant bitterness, and when we plant selfishness? Why do we expect there to be peace when we don't plant it? Looking in a mirror to myself today. So here's some takeaways for us as we close our time together. I think this all starts with putting ourselves in front of the mirror and examining your heart. Are you truly at peace with God? And if that is not the case this morning, know that that, that, that is okay. We're all in this process of spiritual transformation, this ongoing spiritual transformation. But I would challenge each of us this morning, don't just stay there. Get right with him. Run to him. Ask for his perspective and ask for his wisdom. And then from there, from this internal peace with God that you're making, Ask this, how can you be a kind yet firm peacemaker in the lives of those around you? And there are three areas that were just wanted to just speak to. They were just on my heart this week. What about our marriages? To be kind yet firm. I think marriage is, for me, at least a huge place that I need to plant seeds of peace. Husbands, are your words and actions making peace with your wife? Wives, are you in your words and conduct showing this peace that you have in God? And when your spouse royally misses the mark, because I know I miss the mark all the time, are you demonstrating this godly wisdom in peace? Godly perspective. I think about all our parents in our community. You're all sowing peace in your home and in the lives of your children. Are you sowing peace in how you handle their mistakes? When your kids are wrestling on mom and dad's bed and someone's foot goes through the window, you guys all laugh. My mom and dad are absolutely really laughing right now because that was my foot that went through the window and I was wrestling my other brother who's right there. <laughs> but more seriously, what about when your teenager gets caught doing something that they shouldn't? Are you being a peacemaker 
through how you interact with them, even in their worst. And then lastly, what about in your jobs? We interact with so many people on a daily in our workplaces. Are you sowing a kind yet firm peace even in those horrible circumstances of your work? Whatever that is for you guys this week, wherever that place is that you feel like you need to sow more peace, let's do it. (laughs) Knowing that God, through his son Jesus Christ, paid the ultimate price to make peace with us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a God that came down as a baby and then grew into a man and died upon the cross to make peace with us so that we could have peace with you. Lord, I pray as we um, go into our week ahead that we would see and know that peace from you so that we can plant it in the lives of others. In your name we pray. Amen.